0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, we are now at day 21 of the blockade and protests and disruptions in Ottawa. And, you know, as of this morning, it sounds like residents are still waiting for some kind of clue, some kind of idea as to what's going to happen with police. And what they're going to do about the situation. Now, for more on this, let's get an update now with Amanda Connolly, our global national political journalist. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So, last I heard, you know, yesterday, police were handing out leaflets to people. What is the latest?
2: Yes, they were handing out notices on the street yesterday, tucking them into the edges of the cars and the windshields, effectively advising people who are still taking part in the blockade that the time to leave is now. We've seen, um, again, not, not necessarily a, a, a lot of progress here, but we certainly have seen some vehicles leaving over the last kind of 12, 24 hours here. Um, but again, there, there remain a lot of questions about what police are going to do next. All eyes last night were on interim chief Steve Bell at a city council meeting. He was saying that police have a plan that they are prepared to act, but that this is not going to be, uh, as he put it, a quick turnaround. And that residents here may see police uh, doing things and kind of acting in ways that we are not used to seeing here in the city. So that certainly raised a lot of questions, but we really have no details right now about timelines or what this effort will look like.
1: It sounded like there was some interesting stuff that happened at that city council meeting and the police board meeting. Like it sounds like there's a lot of infighting going on, Amanda.
2: Yeah. You know, I, you know, I've, I've covered committees uh, for a number of years here. And I think what we were seeing at Ottawa city council last night really was surprising to a lot of people, the tension and the volatility among the counselors um, I think took a lot of people by surprise. There were a lot of emotions here a uh, number of councillors who were on the verge of tears and very heated words for one another, particularly for Mayor Jim Watson and the councillors who were supporting him, uh, he put a motion forward to remove Diane Deans, who is the chair of the Ottawa Police Services Board, from that role. And that that position, again, kind of oversees the the function of the Ottawa Police Services. And so this, this really comes, again, as Deans has been um, under a lot of criticism for her response and for the police's response, the whole city's response to the situation happening right now in Ottawa.
1: Okay. So there seems to be a lot of confusion about that situation. Let's talk about the weather here too, because what is the deal with this big storm heading your way?
2: Yeah, this has something, this is something that I think a lot of people right now are are watching and unclear of what to make um, about. There is a, what's being called a major winter storm heading for Ottawa, I expected to hit uh, with some freezing rain later in the day today. uh Significant amounts of snow, I believe it's uh, 20 to 25 centimetres wow. over the course of the evening and into Friday. And so, again, as you can imagine, I'm sure with, with all of the, the heavy machinery, the big rigs, the infrastructure encamped in around the city right now, if that is not cleared out, and there's really not a lot of indication right now as to the timeline for doing that, um, removing all of that snow before the spring here, I, I don't know how they're going to get a lot of these uh, the, the snow machines uh, and, and removals into some of these areas to be able to actually do that. So, um, again, really unclear here what, what how that storm is going to factor into any considerations that police are having, the city is having, and really for um, for, for residents who, who are, of course, used to a very quick response to heavy
1: snow here in Ottawa. Okay, and I'll bet. Okay, so what are we hearing though from the federal government? We know we're learning more about what the Emergencies Act involves, uh, but what about the tow trucks? What about, like, what's actually going to happen? Yeah, the, the issue of the tow trucks has been
2: a big one here. And so we, when the government invokes the Emergencies Act for the first time on Monday, one of the reasons that they were giving to do so, one of the powers that they were saying they, they will be able to give to police now is the ability effectively to compel, um, of course, at fair payment, the, the operators of tow trucks to come and work with police to remove vehicles. So this really has been a big a big issue for the police so far. A lot of tow truck operators saying they don't want to be part of this um, either because there is support for the convoy blockades or because they're worried about the security and the safety of their teams here and for their businesses going forward. Uh, so again, a lot of uncertainty there. We, we did hear, of course, and we are going to hear more today about this in the House of Commons, which is set to debate the emergency motion itself. Um, if Again, I, I want to stress it's really important that, that for the government that this this motion will pass because if it does not, um, the state of emergency is effectively revoked. Uh, so this this really is going to be a key test for the government on this. And, and it's looking so far like the NDP might support that. But again, uh, really a lot going to be happening both in uh, question period on Parliament Hill today, the House of Commons through debate. And also, of course, throughout the city as we look for signals
1: from police about what their plans are going to be going forward. Okay. And Amanda, how are, how are residents feeling? This, I think this is again, really going to depend
2: um, who you ask, but certainly I know what I've been hearing from folks uh, from friends from from um, people around the city here is a lot of tension, a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, really the 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 feeling that there is kind of a a, a blade's edge that the, the city is balanced on right now uh, of of this tension and really the uncertainty we saw um, a lot of frustration and anger boiling over last weekend when a number of residents took it upon themselves to Blockade vehicles that were trying to come in to resupply members of the convoy. Uh, that, of course, prompted a lot of concern from police, a lot of concern from officials about the potential risk to those uh, residents. And really, when that happens, of course, the sentiment here was that when you see residents effectively taking that step themselves, it speaks to something in a community that that um, is is very angry, is very frustrated, and doesn't know what else to do. And so. I think right now that's where the city is and really um, everyone kind of waiting with a bit of a bated breath to see what's going to happen
1: next. All right, we'll see Amanda. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. New day here in BC. As of seven hours ago, restrictions have been eased. So to recap, that means indoor personal gatherings, indoor and outdoor organized gatherings, indoor seated events. They're all going to be able to return to full capacity. Restaurants, bars, nightclubs also returning to full capacity. No table size limits you can dance, you can mingle between tables. It also includes the relaxation of restrictions on fitness centers and adult sports with no capacity limits as long as masks are worn and vaccine cards are used. So we also heard this week that some travel restrictions are being slightly eased. Still need a test, but it's not that expensive PCR test. So what does this mean for the hotel industry? Boy, it has Taken a lot of hits during the pandemic. Joining us now is Ingrid Jarrett, President CEO of the BC Hotel Association. Thanks for being back with us, Ingrid. Hi. Good morning, Simi. Thank you. We've talked to you so many times. I feel like over the last two years, and it and it's like fits and starts, right? We feel like oh, we've turned a corner. How are you feeling these days?
3: Well, we're we're just delighted. Uh, you know, I think the last few months with this wave, you know, we were. Surprised when we had a second wave. Never mind a fifth one. Uh, we definitely have been working very hard, both federally and provincially, uh, to monitor and really look at when the time is right. So, the limit restrictions and the and the reopening and the lack of uh, the lack of restrictions for food and beverage meetings, conferences, events is was a very very welcome announcement. And I think because there's so many uh, things in place such as safety plans, vaccine cards, and the protocols that hotels have in place, it really, it really makes sure that people know that they're safe to travel, that, it's, uh, that people that are wearing masks and are vaccinated are very, very limited risk. And overall, it's a big sigh of relief. So we're ready to look at recovery and hope that 2022 actually keeps people in business and people
1: employed. So do you think this means that conventions are going to actually start to get booked?
3: Uh, I do. And we are seeing, you know, the, the importance of uh, knowing that those restrictions are lifted uh, are already saying to our corporate clients and to companies that would book conferences, associations, etc., that we are open for business in Canada and with the travel restrictions also there was a a change in the language around travel to Canada. That really opens Canada up too to the countries that already are ahead of us when it comes to being open for business, especially for conventions And large gatherings,
1: right? So, when you see those countries that are ahead of us and open already, what is the demand there like? Do you think business travel will it pick up again? Will these conventions start to come back?
3: Well, that's certainly our hope. You know, it's a very competitive landscape, and the uh, the countries that have not had the restrictions that we have have been booming. And so now it's going to be some hard work and some clever. Uh, strategies that are going to attract people back to Canada and to British Columbia. You know, we have a very, very strong international reputation and that international business is critical for our recovery and to regain our position in the market. So uh, we believe that we have people want to come to British Columbia and Canada and I think now from a partnership perspective it really means that our strategies need to be aligned uh, you know, the welcome announcement last uh, week with the investment in the meeting, conference, and event sector uh, was very welcome news as well. So we're ready to roll up the sleeves and, and open the doors. And I can tell you that certainly meetings are being booked. It's going to be, as I said, competitive, but we're ready.
1: Okay, but let's talk about staff. What about that situation?
3: Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, <laughs> You know that they don't come from uh, they don't come from thin air. That's for sure. And so I don't think one strategy is going to help in that. There are many different sectors that are suffering the shortages that we are. Um, but I do know that the opening of the Experience Canada, which is the Working Holiday Visa, our international students are once again uh, able to be working. We have all kinds of partners to up. To train, upskill underemployed British Columbians, and that's been very successful. We also are working with the provincial and the federal government on expediting visas for qualified foreign workers, uh, and really for people who uh, are around the world that are looking for a new home, um, and certainly to become new Canadians. So there, there's a lot of work being done on this file and you know i think the estimate currently is about 30,000 jobs in the hospitality industry that that are currently empty if we were operating at full capacity so this is heavy lifting it's a big piece of work it won't happen overnight
1: okay yeah exactly so recruiting all of those people so does that mean that there's probably going to be a bit of a slow build up on this Ingrid given that they, you won't be able to staff up fully
3: Exactly, and you know, just just like an airplane, you can't just turn the lights on in a hotel and you're ready to go. Um, so there there will be a lag, um, and we I know every you know I don't even know a hotel that isn't hiring right now. So many many jobs available, full time, part time, casual, flexible, and so you know the the call is it's an incredible industry. I've had an amazing career in it. It's there's there's a fun element. It is hard work. It's very rewarding, and uh, we are hoping that all those different strategies that we're working together with our partners on will actually uh, make a difference, right. so that people will be rehired.
1: Are we still? Are we seeing a steady flow of tourists right now? Uh, it
3: has been very slow since the border announcement, um, and you know we have not seen the U.S. Uh, come back the way that we'd hoped. Um, and internationally, we are seeing bookings for the spring and summer fairly strong. And we are seeing meetings and conventions starting to rebook. But again, very often a convention will book anywhere from, you know, two years to seven years out. So this isn't a short play. It's going to really make sure, mean that, you know, we have uh, opportunities to book business in 2022, and then really looking beyond as well. So there's a significant amount of uh, investment that needs to occur in order for us to reopen to that large uh, meeting and convention sector.
1: All right. Well, Ingrid, thank you so much for your time this morning. Good luck.
0: Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, if there were a place open at this hour, it's 7.20 on this Thursday morning, you could go dancing because technically those restrictions have now been lifted in BC as of about seven hours and 20 minutes ago. So a lot has changed from yesterday to today with the restrictions that have been lifted, uh, you know, capacity restrictions, all of that. We've, We've eased it. So we know that that's going to mean some big changes. Now, Dr. Bonnie Henry has said businesses and individuals should go at their own pace. But are there concerns? What are the potential health risks from doing this and from just having everything open up like this? And really, are people going to be paying attention to any of those potential risks? Joining us now is Dr. Burinder Narang, family physician, co-founder of the This Is Our Shot campaign and Global News CKNW medical contributor. Good morning, Dr. Narang.
4: Good morning. How are you?
1: I am good. Thank you. So let's talk about how are you feeling about these restrictions being lifted today?
4: Yeah, I mean I think like everyone it it it's an adjustment period but it's not unexpected and it's something that um uh, while every province we have seen have really taken their own uh approach I think BC has uh shown a commitment to a phased reopening. Um, but I, I, I had literally think there'd be no plan that would have made everyone happy or everyone unhappy to be fair. I think it is, uh, that's a reflective of the society that we're in and how prepared everyone is right now.
1: Do you feel like people are going to be jumping in with this, like all in?
4: uh some people definitely will be i think there are people have been that have been ready to do uh ready for this to happen for a while and i think we have to look at uh, where we're at right now so it's we were on the path of kind of recovery to in late fall and then omicron came and surprised uh some people didn't surprise others, but you know, we, we we do know variants can come, and this one came very quickly, and it displaced everything very quickly, and there was a lot that needed to be learned about it. So I think it was reasonable at the time to take a step back and see, you know, what what mitigation do we need to put in place? Um, you know, protect our healthcare workers, how protect the healthcare system, um, from getting overloaded. But then we started learning that a lot of the, uh, the way that Omicron has been transmitting um, is a way that uh, actually is in our benefit, if some may look back and say that, in the sense that for a highly popu- um, vaccinated population, it wasn't causing that same level of severity as in Delta, but it was also displacing Delta out of our community. And so it, it came like a rapid fire. Absolutely, it's caused harm, and there's been many people um that have suffered from it. But there's also been many people that where the immunity has spread um in uh, a much better way than it could have in Delta, in the sense where you definitely feel like crap for a few days, but then you're feeling a lot better. And so um, I, I think that what we're seeing is because of how fast it was spreading, um, the restrictions really didn't couldn't stop the spread nearly as effectively as it was with previous variants. And I think the opening reflects that, that the restrictions, and when you look at what's happening in BC um, around the world and around Canada and where the different restrictions were put in at different times, it really hasn't had a huge impact on the spread uh, of like how fast it's risen and how fast it's dropping.
1: Okay, so at that point, so does that make you feel a little bit better?
4: Yeah, I, I think it, it shows us that a lot of it will come down to people making that decision uh, on their own individual and their family basis, what their risk tolerance is, who they're, um, you know, who's vulnerable at home, who isn't vaccinated, and, and, and some will be ready Um, Many people have already had Omicron, so yes, there's a chance of um, um, reinfection that we have seen in other jurisdictions as well, but it's not a reinfection uh, or it isn't an infection that if you have this level of immunity uh, is likely to put you in hospital or cause significant disruption to your life.
1: Okay. What what kind of advice do you have then, Dr. Narang, for people Mm -hmm. who are thinking like, okay, I can do all this stuff again? What would you like to see people do?
4: Well, I think people have to still be cautious. I think that you have to figure out what is your, um, um, tolerance, um, to go into these places and recognize that, um, while the vaccine has been a great, um, um, you know, uh, our strongest line of defense, there are other, the other things are still in place to help, um, protect, uh, um, people as best as they can. When you're looking at, you know, certain, um, the, the mandates and places, masks are obviously still effective. And then using common sense that uh, if you are feeling unwell, then you shouldn't be going to Rogers Arena. Um, if you have a cough, and you, or um, you have a runny nose, or if you have a fever, you know, you have to do what you can to stay home, whether that's COVID or whether it's not. I think that's what we've learned about right. um, infectious illnesses, that there's many things that we can do to protect uh, people around us well, we'll and see ourselves.
1: What, yeah, we'll see what yeah. happens. Dr. Narang, thank you.
4: Yeah, thank This is
0: Mornings with Simi.
1: How much has the pandemic disrupted the lives of seniors? Well, we have some new data on that from the Office of the Seniors Advocate. Their new report shows that emergency department visits by seniors went down 9%. Hospitalizations declined by 7%. That's a reflection of seniors probably opting to, well, stay home and manage their own health issues rather than risk going to a hospital. Reportable incidents in long-term care also decreased by 24% but they feel that could be because of a decrease in regulatory inspections too, because so many other things have been going on during the pandemic. So for more on this, we're joined now by Terry Lake, CEO of BC Care Providers Association. Terry, thanks for being back with us.
5: Thanks for having me, Cindy.
1: Are there things in this report, like when you look at that concern you?
5: Uh, Yes, there are. There's a number of things. Uh, I think the seniors advocate has, has spoken about the increased use of antipsychotics in care and, you know, that's something that all of the um, the sector uh, was very singularly focused on before the pandemic. Uh, and uh, we were making very good gains in reducing the use of antipsychotics with disconnection from families uh, because of the pandemic. You know, we've seen uh, seniors in care be isolated. Many don't understand uh, why their family isn't coming to see them, why they can't do activities. And so it does affect their mental health. And uh, these antipsychotics, which are prescribed by physicians, um, you know, tend to be something that is used to, to manage that uh, unpredictable behaviour that sometimes comes with confusion uh, over their surroundings, particularly as we saw during the pandemic.
1: Is that something you think that needs to be more closely monitored then? So which care facilities are administering these? And is it time to have a plan for, for doing it less?
5: Well, there is a plan, and as I said, because of uh, COVID, that plan has been interrupted. The long term care directory that the uh, seniors advocate put out just before Christmas uh, demonstrated that in government owned and operated long term care homes, the use of antipsychotics was actually about 19% higher than in contracted care homes. Now, there may be reasons for that. There's sometimes more complex patients in government owned uh, uh, nursing homes. But all of us need to be focused uh, you know, now in reducing the use of antipsychotics. And quite honestly, having family members come back to visit uh, as we celebrate Families Month of BC Care Providers is so important in the mental and physical health of residents in care. So I think some of this will be naturally turned around by getting back to normal visits, normal activities in care homes.
1: Right. How do we... Obviously, as you said, a lot of seniors have been impacted by this, right? There's going to be some lasting scars on this. So what what's being done to address those?
5: Well, I mean, right now we're just singularly focused on getting through uh, the, the pandemic. We have critical staffing shortages. And so we have uh, staff members that uh, are under extremists as well in terms of their mental and physical condition. So the whole sector really needs to focus on the wellness of residents and of staff. And if you look at the national standard uh, draft guidelines that were put out, they really talk about this a lot, about this being a workplace and a a home environment. And so we have to focus on the health of residents and the health of uh, people who work to look after those residents. And so I think we will see a concentrated effort, not just here in British Columbia, but across the country, in looking at making this uh, a workplace uh, that is a healthy workplace and uh, a place where residents can really enjoy their life uh, because it is, in, in most cases, their last home.
1: Which is what that was designed for, right? For them to enjoy uh, their time that they have left. What is the rapid test situation, Terry?
5: Well, uh, we heard yesterday there's a lot more coming, but it's, um, you know, it's it's been very, very lethargic in terms of getting supplies out. We had some providers this week that had completely run out, and they were told that uh, you know visit, visitation should continue, which is concerning for everybody when they're supposed to be rapid tested every time they come to visit. Uh, we understand that uh, those providers got some tests yesterday, but we really are behind the eight ball on this. We're not testing uh, asymptomatic, uh, asymptomatic staff at all, and I think. That makes people uncomfortable, both uh, family members who wonder why they have to be tested when staff are not tested and staff members who want to know whether or not they are taking the virus uh, home to their family. So we, we absolutely need more rapid tests and we need to be using them more often.
1: Is there a plan then for like, do you know how many long term care we'll be getting with this batch now that we're supposed to be arriving in the next few weeks?
5: Well, because they've expanded uh, you know the, the spectrum of, of environments in which these long-term uh, sorry these uh, rapid tests are going, uh, we are limited to only six tests per bed uh, per home. So you know that doesn't go very far. You really have maybe a week's worth of tests when what supplies come in. and um, you know if we're going and, and hopefully we will be able to open up visitation even wider, we're going to need a lot more than that.
1: Really? Because it sounds like such a huge number, right? So is that the key, do you think, to to keeping these long-term care homes open so that visitors can keep coming?
5: Well, I think a couple of things. Number one, we have to manage the risk of the virus versus the risk of, of depriving people of that social connection. Um, and, uh, you know, we also have to look at things like staffing. We, we absolutely have to address... The the staffing shortages and we have put uh, or are putting in a formal request to Dr. Henry uh, to to eliminate the single site order for those staff members who are triple vaccinated because the lack of staff is actually a bigger health threat to residents in care than the virus at this point. Uh, So we're hopeful that that'll happen and we can have more people at the front lines to care for our elders uh, so that they can get back to normal activities and, uh, you know, improve their mental and physical well-being.
1: Now, Terry, that would be pretty big, isn't it? Wouldn't it be if Dr. Henry said, because that single site order was was huge at the beginning of the pandemic. So where is that in the process? What kind of indications have you received on that?
5: Well, you know, we've, we've been told that it's uh, subject to debate, but we have not heard back yet. We know that other provinces uh, that also had a single-site order have dropped it for the very reasons I cited. They're, they're experiencing staff shortages. And it does not apply to, to acute care, Simi. So what we have are... Um, care aides or LPNs that will work in in, uh, licensed uh, um, long-term care homes and then go and do shifts in the hospital because they they can't. And that, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, because uh, the single-site order means you can't work in two care homes, but you can work in a hospital and a care home. So given the fact that we now have complete vaccination of residents in care, that, uh, you know, there's the ability to make sure that all staff are triple vaccinated, there really isn't a public health imperative to maintain that single-site order anymore. And that's why other provinces have dropped it, and uh, we're requesting the same.
1: And any idea when you might hear about that?
5: Well, we meet with the ministry on a weekly basis. So, uh, you know, again, this is going in uh, today after another request yesterday, uh, verbally. So, hopefully, at our meeting next week, we'll we'll hear something about that.
1: All right. Well, Terry, thank you very much for the update.
5: Simi, thank you so much.
1: That's Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, talking about that struggle that anybody who works in long-term care has had during the pandemic, and they know that it's there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get seniors feeling safe and healthy again in long-term care. This is Mornings with Simi. Is the empty homes tax working a few years after it was implemented? Well, the census data was released last week, and some people have been doing a deep dive into it to find out what is going on. Joining us now is Andy Yan, the director of the city program and continuing studies adjunct professor in the SFU Urban Studies program. Good morning, Andy. Good morning, Sydney. So what has the census information told us? Well, the census information has told us that, I guess, with the
6: closest measure of vacant and empty homes, that we've found that there's been a decline within the, last, uh, well, within the last census period.
1: So that would be in the last five years, a decline of how much?
6: It's a decline. Well, regionally, it's interesting, is that regionally it's been a decline of, of, of 16% and a citywide, within the city of Vancouver, a decline of 10%.
1: Really? And so that is 10% fewer homes that are listed as empty. Yes. Okay, how do how did they determine mm-hmm. that? How do they know?
6: Well, I think that it's looking at a variable, like it's 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 a variable within the census to look at non-usual residence occupancy, and it's been one of the kind of big challenges in terms of really getting a deeper deeper metrics. And it's also to know that it's not only just about pure vacancy, but then I think that a lot of it is also um, the ones through which um, there isn't say a a permanent um, a permanent occupant. So then uh, it's it's been actually pretty surprising to see this sudden drop within this uh, within the last five years, as it breaks away from a 40-year pattern of ever-increasing percentages.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, so I was going to ask, and what about other jurisdictions? Is this like an anomaly for where we have the empty home stacks?
6: Well, it's interesting, because what I also did was compare it to the City of Toronto. And for the same period within the City of Toronto, it actually saw an increase of 30%. In terms of in terms of the percentage of non-resident
1: occupied units, so they saw an increase in the number of empty homes, whereas our region saw a decrease.
6: Uh, yes, very much so.
1: Huh. Okay. So, what do you attribute that to?
6: Well, I think that it's a combination of local as well as provincial uh, measures, particularly on demand, really dealing with the empty homes tax, the speculation and vacancy taxes that I think have been implemented since 2016. And I think that that's really, I think, part of the conversation that has, I think, uh, goes into the development of housing policy.
1: Hmm. Okay, so would you, based on those numbers then, Andy, would you say that the empty homes tax is working and doing what it was intended to do?
6: I, I, I think that there's good indication. I think that there's, of course, I think uh, the need for, I think, ongoing, I think, assessment, ongoing research. I think the kind of concerns around enforcement, around issues, around transparency, and then also unintended consequences. As I think that there's been some stories of some folks getting caught up in the vacancy tax that perhaps aren't necessarily what was intended that I think that that's still an, an ongoing issue.
1: So let me ask you this then. So if we say it's 10% in the city of Vancouver, does that does that essentially justify all the work that's gone into instituting the Empty Home Sect? Is that enough of a difference?
6: Um, I think that that's I think that's that's part of the solution. I think that it's it is I think towards a I think development of a series of ho- housing policies that really reflect the kind of ways through which Vancouver real estate is being consumed. And that I think that well I mean I'm sorry just to correct this uh, within the city of Vancouver in 2021 it was actually it was seven percent within the city of Vancouver. Hoover, uh, compared to what it was in 2016, which was 8.2%. And I think that that really that goes into the kind of demand side measures that have occurred within those last five years.
1: Right. So that's also assuming that the original numbers that we're working off of were an accurate representation of how many empty homes there there were.
6: Oh, indeed. And I think that that's really, I think, been an ongoing challenge, not only in Vancouver, but in jurisdictions around around North America as they try to get and really, really get into the challenge of really measuring these for this particular issue.
1: Right. So what is your feeling on this then? With all the measures that have been put in place over the last five years since 2016, are we improving the empty home situation?
6: I think Slowly. I think that there are still, I think, some actions that really need to occur. I think that really when it goes to short-term rental, a.k.a. Airbnb, that there's still, I think, need for, I think, regulations which are enforced. Um, there, I, There have been examples of, of abuse within the city of Vancouver of the short-term rental regulations they did pass. And I think that really the the ongoing challenge towards getting good data, I think, is emblematic of really the kind of work we have ahead
1: of us. So you think that people are still finding a way around this?
6: Unfortunately, I think so. And I think that it's been one of the kind of big almost cat and mouse games really towards this type of, I think, new phenomenon of, of real estate consumption.
1: What kind of an impact do you think the pandemic has had on the issue of empty homes?
6: Well, I think that that's actually going to be one of the interesting questions. We probably won't know until for another five years in the next census to kind of look at really what the long-term impact are in terms of empty homes. Did they fill them up? Uh, Did they uh, they increase? It didn't seem like they increased in terms of empty homes. But I think that that's really, I think the jury's still still out on that.
1: I mean, I certainly don't hear as many anecdotal stories from people, you know, Mm -hmm. it used to be that people could point to a house in their neighborhood that was definitely an empty home.
6: Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's a really interesting observation because did the pandemic fill up some of these empty homes? And, and I think that it's also, I think, really, again, the kind of, uh, be, uh, the, the kind of I think, uh, actions between the pandemic as well as these public policies, both at the local and the, provi- and the provincial level. Because one kind of uses the test case of Toronto and actually see how, how much it increased uh, in, in, the, in really in, in the lack of policies that the provincial and the local governments have taken up.
1: All right. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time on that.
6: Oh, my total pleasure. Take care, Sammy.
1: Andy Yan is the Director of the City Program and Continuing Studies Adjunct Professor at the SFU Urban Studies Program, talking about a deep dive into the census data that shows that in our region, there has been a drop. So region-wide, about 16% in the City of Vancouver, about 7% in the number of empty homes. So that's could it be more than that? It's sure. I mean, who knows? Was the census completely accurate? Maybe some people were finding a way to not put that in the census. But it does show that, unlike Toronto, there are fewer empty homes here in this region compared to the last census five years ago. But my question to you is look around your neighborhood. It used to be, you know, I heard from a lot of you saying, I know how many homes on my home, on my street are empty. You know, I can tell that. But can you still? Are there fewer empty homes in your neighborhood or do you think they're still out there that it's still dark all the time that you can tell that there's nobody living in that house? Simi at cknw.com. You can tell me your thoughts on that.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, we've been talking about travel and tourism. Earlier this morning, we talked to the Hotel Association. They are very much hoping that with this change in restrictions that we have had this week, not just in BC, but in Canada when it comes to travel, that they will see a return to conventions, big ones being booked here. And they're hopeful about that. Well, what about the cruise industry? They're also welcoming a change to federal COVID-19 testing rules, but there are still some questions. Joining us now is Barry Panner, former BC Attorney General and Legal Advisor to the Cruise Lines International Association. Barry, thank you for being here.
0: You're welcome. Good morning.
1: Good morning. So what are those concerns right now when it comes to cruise travel?
0: Well, uh, there hasn't been any in uh, Canada since uh, 2020, actually since 2019. That was the last time we had a cruise ship in Canada uh, at the end of the season of 2019. So we've missed out on two years of economic activity, including 17,000 jobs right here in British Columbia and 30,000 across the country. Uh, We're hopeful that cruise can restart in Canada this year. It has elsewhere in the world. In fact, it restarted in July of 2020, so more than a year and a half ago in Europe, uh, and has gradually been rebuilding elsewhere in the world. But uh, we still have not yet returned to service in Canada. Uh, it's hoped that the first ship will arrive in Vancouver uh, in April.
1: All right. So, what? But do you think their demand is there? Are people saying they want to do this?
0: Oh yes. There's uh, a lot of pent up demand, as you're probably hearing from your listeners. Um, people are wanting to travel. They're wanting to get out and explore the world again, and they're right. wanting to get together with friends and family. And cruise, of course, provides a great opportunity to do that. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of demand and. Since uh, cruising restarted in the United States in June of last year, uh, more than 1 million people have gotten on cruise ships there, uh, 6 million around the world since July of 2020. So 6 million people, including passengers and crew, have been on ships uh, sailing. And uh, for the most part, it's been a very successful restart. But it's been gradual and building, uh, with uh, many protocols and procedures put in place based on the best available uh, scientific and medical information.
1: Right, let's talk about that then. So what are the procedures? Does it depend on which cruise line you're going to? Uh,
0: all the cruise lines have a to follow that are members of the Cruise Lines International Association, which is uh, one of my clients. Uh, they have put forward policies and procedures that all the members are expected to adhere to. And in addition, uh, the cruise lines must comply with whatever policies are in place in the countries where they sail. So there are... Many procedures, but generally speaking, you need to be tested uh, and test negative before you're allowed onto a cruise ship. And uh, almost virtually virtually everyone is vaccinated uh, getting on board a cruise ship. So So those things in place, there's been masking required, of course, also on board cruise ships when you're in public areas. And there's been greater social distancing and a number of other changes that people have experienced on board, uh, all designed to mitigate the risk of COVID-19.
1: Barry, do you think, has, has BC lost a bit of stature in the cruise community because of the rules here and because there, there hasn't been an, they haven't even been able to come here and dock here?
0: Well, uh, the cruise lines would like to get back here. Um, as you know, last year, cruising did restart, as I mentioned, in, from the United States, including ships to Alaska. Normally, that would have meant a lot of business for British Columbia, But because Canada did not allow cruise ships to stop in Canada last year, uh, those cruise ships sailed past British Columbia, uh, carrying passengers from Seattle to Alaska and back. Um, Obviously, British Columbians, many of them, are counting on those jobs to come back here. And In order for those 17,000 jobs to get regenerated, ships will have to be able to stop in Canada. We're a lot closer than we were even a few weeks ago to sorting out what the requirements are uh, by our federal government, but there's still a number of lingering questions that need to be answered. Uh, Transport Canada has been very helpful in trying to get those answers from us, from the Public Health Agency of Canada. Uh, but those discussions are ongoing, including uh, yesterday and again today. Uh, there'll be meetings uh, later today on this topic.
1: Right. So it sounds like it's it's close then. Do you feel like this is going to get going soon?
0: Uh y- I'm hoping the answers are closer than they were. I mean, they are. A lot of issues have been settled already. Uh, the, the, uh, the removal of the absolute requirement for a PCR test before entering Canada does make things a lot simpler. Uh, but there's still questions to be answered about how the rapid antigen tests are to be administered within that 24-hour period uh, when you're on board a cruise ship. Um, and uh, In addition, um, I just note that April really isn't that far away when ships are expected to start coming here. So uh, we're getting really down to the wire here.
1: Right. So do you feel like, okay, we need to know soon because there's a whole season. We're on the verge of another season here.
0: Yes, it's just around the corner. So uh, I know a lot of work is being done and there's still some more that remains to be done and everyone is uh, eager to get to the finish line here. And like I said, Transport Canada is being, uh, very supportive in trying to get us uh, the following the, the remaining answers that we need in order to earn, in order to have a successful and safe season.
1: All right we'll see what happens uh, Barry thank you very much for your time.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you.
1: Barry Penner is a legal advisor to the Cruise Lines International Association, also a former BC Attorney General, talking about getting things up and running again for the cruise ship industry. So we know that things have changed when it comes to uh, getting that PCR test if you are returning to Canada, right? Uh, at the end of the month, the fully vaccinated travellers can use either a rapid antigen test or a PCR test to fulfill fulfill their border entry requirements. Now, you know, that's a big step for anybody who was traveling because the price difference between the two is substantial. But does that make it easier enough that people will say, well, now I'm going to travel. Now I'm going to get on that cruise ship. They are waiting to get the cruise ship industry back up and running here because I'm wondering, is is there an appetite, do you think? Like, are you ready to go cruising again? Are you ready to book it as soon as possible, as soon as they can fix these last few hurdles, as Barry Penner was pointing out there? Let me know, simi at cknw.com.